people need to pause and recognize in those moments where you've been and celebrate that. And then what's on the other side of the hill, sometimes you don't know, but know that you will get there and it'll be okay. Hi, I'm Nils Vinya, and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Hello and welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. Today, my guest is Miranda Drakonsky. Miranda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here, Nils. I am just so honored and humbled to be joining you to talk about something I'm very passionate about, leadership. That's right. And I cannot wait to get into all of your background and leadership, incredible advice, expertise that you have to share. But first, would you share with me and the audience the role that you're in today and the company that you work for? Yeah. So I am the chief customer officer at a company named Swiftly. Uh, Swiftly, we are a big data platform that powers public transit. Just to put it simply, I could uh, go into all the details and nuances and probably everybody be like, why are we listening? So I'll leave it there. But we power public transit. We have a very strong mission and it's something that it touches me personally. You know, I don't want to go into it too much here, but, you know, we believe in equity and, and that, you know, accessibility to transit really provides opportunity for folks, whether it's opportunity to find employment or education or healthcare or food or whatever it may be. Um, so it's just very personal to me, too. That's wonderful. I mean, just one to connect at that personal of a level to the mission of your company, critically important because it keeps a lot of other things in perspective and keeps a lot of things moving. But two, that, you know, you're inside of a B2B SaaS company doing something that's making a real difference in the world. And I'm with you on the, you know, equity and accessibility for all. So that's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you to Swiftly for making that kind of a world of possibility. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely helps when things are difficult and sometimes you feel like you're just, you know, a cog or you're building another widget. You just remind yourself that in the bigger picture, we're making a much bigger impact and that helps you get through the more difficult and challenging things. I think that's a really important tip just regardless of, you know, discipline or or industry or product or whatnot is there's always a bigger picture view. And to keep that in mind, so I love that you're dropping some leadership advice and wisdom here right in the first couple of minutes, because sometimes it can be really easy to get lost in that minutia in the day-to-day. I'm curious, just you know, any advice that you would share with our listeners about how to keep that into perspective. Sometimes it takes like a real big event to realize that the big picture is more important. But how would you advise people to think about this so that it's just a constant thing that is happening throughout and it doesn't take some huge event? I think everyone in an organization needs to kind of stay close to their customers and the customer of their customers. 
So while we don't work directly with the riders, they are our ultimate customer. That's who we're serving. So one, I use public transit as much as I I can, especially when I'm going into San Francisco. So you and I were just talking about those bitter cold mornings standing on the BART platform waiting for our train to arrive. And when I'm on, you know, public transit, I do a lot of a lot of observations on, you know, how is it, how does it run and is it convenient? And look, I'm a choice rider. I have other options. There are folks out there that don't. So I remember that and I kind of look around and think, okay, we're impacting, you know, we're impacting people. You know, the, the single mom who needs to make sure she can get her kid to daycare on time so she can get to work on time because she can't be a minute late, right? So staying close to your customer, being a customer of your tools is also something that I suggest folks to do. Whether it is something as impactful like what we're doing at Swiftly, or even when I was at Hello Sign, which may not seem to be as impactful or as you know momentous of a change. You know, we were creating efficiencies in folks' work streams, which can empower all kinds of good, right? So the person that's doing their first home purchase, being able to do that on the fly, or, you know, you get the picture, just, you know, dig deep on who you're serving and try to remind yourself of that every day. And it kind of puts things into perspective sometimes that that when you're stressed out or you are questioning what in the heck you're doing, um, it brings it back to perspective. And I think, you know, on another tangent, you know, there are a lot of folks out there right now that are moving companies. They're, you know, looking for their next opportunity or they're being recruited. Fundamentally, make sure you find a product or a service that you really believe in, something that you can stand behind, leaders that you want to link arms with, people that you want to support and work with every day, and the rest will generally fall into place. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. Being a customer of your tools, if you can, recognize and and just remember who you're serving every single day, staying close to your customers, and you know, if at all possible, being personally aligned with the work that you're doing, the work that your company does. I've, you know, found myself in in both sides of that spectrum, organizations where I was 100% aligned with the mission and the purpose, and then organizations where I was aligned with the role, I wasn't really aligned with the industry or the product. And there is a very, very big difference between my engagement level and, and overall level of satisfaction between those two scenarios. So, I hear you. Yeah, there's also the this, and you know, especially in startups. I'm an early to mid stage startup person, and I have, and I'm not going to name any names, but there was a company I joined that was doing really big things that I was very excited about. And then you fast forward, you know, a year or two, and they've taken an investment from certain investors, and the investors are kind of pushing the direction a little bit and change who the company is at its core. So I just also want to recognize that you could do all of your due diligence and join a company, and the ethos changes. So just, you know, don't feel like you did anything wrong. Like that stuff happens in Silicon Valley and in startups as well. There was an organization I was part of many, many years ago, and we had a habit of turning over our entire executive leadership team every August. (laughs) Literally, I was there for nearly three years. We went through three different leadership teams in that time, and the strategy of the company and the pace and the change in the industries we focused on and sold into changed literally every single year. So you're, I hear you. You're absolutely right. So one, you have to be able to adapt, number one, and make the call. 
on if this new environment still serves you, because maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Ultimately, at the end, on the, upon the last change, it did not serve me anymore, and I left that organization, and that was fine. They went on to do great things, I went on to do great things, and the world was a better place. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right, cool. So, Miranda, tell us a little bit about how you got into your first leadership position. Well, I'm going to go a little on the personal side here. So my mother has struggled with severe mental illness my entire life, so much so that I had to be the leader in that relationship ever since I was a little kid. When I had my son, I took him when he was just a little itty bitty baby back to the neighborhood where my grandmother lived. She, you know, she passed on years ago. I was really close to the neighbors there. And they recounted stories of this precocious little three, four-year-old who took control of every situation, knew where we needed to go, what we needed to do. So I was always, you know, in control of the relationship with my mother. And I'm not equating leadership to being in control, but I, I had to lead. I had to lead that relationship and help guide my mother to the right outcome to what I knew as a young, young, young child, what we needed to do. And I have memories of this as well. I don't know. It's probably my earliest memories, maybe four, three. I I don't know the exact age, but I have memories of telling my mother, uh, no, no, we need to go here. No, no, we need to do this. No, no, it is time to eat, like time to make sure. And that was that was kind of the my entire childhood. When I was four, she gave birth to my younger brother. And then I took on another role where I became like the protector of my little brother and her. <laughs> so my entire childhood, don't get me wrong, I have many glorious, lovely memories of the quirky things that you do when you have a mother with mental illness. <laughs> So it's like, but the actual motion though, I, when I look back as to where it started, it started there. I just always felt this sense of responsibility at a very young age of making sure that everyone was taken care of, that we were doing the things we needed to do, that I knew we needed to brush our teeth every morning. And I knew that my brother needed food and needed to eat. And it was, you know, in a lot of regards, my responsibility at least I took it on as my responsibility because my mother wasn't able to do that. Wow. So. That is such an incredibly powerful story. And to think of a, you at three or four running the show and directing what you had to do to survive for you and your mom and your brother, I have three kids myself. And when they were three years old, like that's a different world. It's just incredible to to see what you were able to do and accomplish in that environment. And how big of a influence do you think just that environment had versus you from a, this is who you are from a, I can take charge of situations. I can assess what needs to get done. I can make sure everything, is that a, is that a personality trait or was this an environmentally influenced or both? I don't know. You know, maybe a little bit of both. I, uh, for full transparency, I've had many, many, many years of therapy. <laughs> so my brother and I are both very well-rounded adults. We uh, both are parents and we have wonderful children who we've shifted the tide of how we grew up. I think there's a little bit of it naturally, but I think at that early age, when you just learn how to do those things, it becomes part of you. I, I think one of the biggest outcomes of it is I don't have a lot of fear of failing. 
it's kind of fascinating. Fast forward to when I was 19 and, you know, I I got married really young. I was dating my ex-husband, the father of my son. He asked me if, you know, I wanted to move to Mexico. And at 19, I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And that's how I've approached quite a bit of my life where I do things in a very methodical way, but I'm not afraid to take chances and I'm not afraid to take that leap. That's really served me well in tech startup where, you know, I sometimes take chances on companies or roles or things like that, that normally folks who are adverse to risk wouldn't take. However, on the contrary, I am generally the person in an organization that operationalizes everything, that I look at what we're doing and I immediately say risk, 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 risk. I can be like kind of the party pooper that calls out all of the things that could potentially go wrong so we can plan for it and be prepared for it. So I have, I think, both sides of the coin there. I mean, that's fascinating. You usually don't see both sides because they're kind of extremes, right? One, the the just go with the flow and no fear of failing and just, you know, make a decision and move. And the other is, well, it's the ability to see the potential areas of risk. I think as you highlight there, much like you did when you were a three or four year old, you saw areas of risk when you're, you were growing up with your brother. You saw areas of risk that he might not do X, Y, or Z, or you might not be able to do X, Y, or Z if you didn't do this. Yeah. I, I have a funny story. So we lived in rural Michigan, but we lived on a very fast road. Uh, it was like a highway where people should be going 55, but they're doing probably 65, 70. And I used to take a stick. We would ride our bicycles around this. We had a circle driveway and I would take a stick and I would draw a line in the dirt. And I would tell him as a little kid, you are not to go over that line because I didn't want him to get, I was always worried. I didn't want him to get too close to the road, but it was like, okay, let's climb to the top of that tree or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, those were the boundaries. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, no big deal. Let's build our own bicycles that we probably shouldn't be riding because they're really dangerous, but don't go too close to the road. So it's that same dichotomy. Wow. That's fascinating. As you said, a very important skill set, especially for early and mid-stage companies when there's so much all over the place, so many different opportunities to pursue. It'd be great to follow all of them, but then at the same time, you got to be able to know what's potential risk and which ones, how to make a decision. So that's an awesome combo. So let's fast forward now. As you, you know, you had your son and you were in a position, well, tell us a little bit about how you got into the working world. What was that transition like coming from this environment where you were solely taking care of your mother and your brother and yourself? And then now all of a sudden you had to, you had an opportunity to, you know, earn income. And what was the kind of transition into that working world? Gosh, yeah. So I started working in restaurants. When I was 14, I took my first job scooping ice cream and washing dishes at a local cafe. I worked at another restaurant for two or three years. It was larger than that one. And then I left that one and I took on my first management role at another, yeah, another restaurant. So I was managing a restaurant for a good solid year. Then I went to work in a local factory. It's 
It's where everybody worked. It was Frigidaire. I was building refrigerators. I have a lovely scar on my hand <laughs> uh, where I cut myself on the bottom of a refrigerator. They're very sharp for those that don't know that. I worked there from 6 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. running a screw gun, and I was making good money. I was 18, doing okay. I was super happy. I felt like, you know, I could pay my rent. I had extra money. My bills were paid. But I was also very ambitious. So I went and I took another job from 6 p.m. to midnight answering phones in a call center. One of my friends went and took a role. And she's like, hey, you should check this out. So I did. The money at the factory, believe it or not, was way better than the money at the call center. So I didn't stop the factory job. I just started working part-time at the call center as well. And that was my first chance to really see what it could be like to work in a professional environment. I hadn't had experience there, even though it was a call center and it was a big bustling call center. It was at Amway outside of Grand Rapids. And that was a huge campus. A lot of, you know, examples of people doing, you know, good things for themselves there. And that was kind of my first foray. Uh, then when I moved to Mexico, I took on a really big role that I was highly underqualified for. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the no fear of failing, right? Just jumped in. Okay. I work for a company called Par for Wichita, and I was kind of like the, I guess, production manager for lack of, I don't even remember what title they gave me. They were just so excited to hire this American that's living in rural Mexico. <laughs> so they gave me this very big role, but I was you know, responsible for making sure that production was on schedule, applying pressure to all of the plant managers to make sure that they were getting their quotas done. And it was blue jeans. So we were sewing blue jeans. So that was also like a leadership type role. It was my responsibility every day to go around and just apply pressure, make sure we were delivering, make sure quality checks were in, make sure we had everything we needed to meet supply because we were sewing for like Old Navy, Baby Gap, places like that. And that was really fascinating. That really helped me kind of kickstart my real, like I call it my real career because I learned Spanish and I learned a lot about just supply chain, production, all of that kind of stuff. I came back to the United States. My marriage had not worked out and I was four months pregnant. That's when the real work started. I knew I was going to be a single mom and I knew I didn't have a ton of, you know, support that was going to come in from my family because they aren't able to, you know, mentally or financially take on the support. So that's when I I landed my my job at Lion Del Bazel. I was there for 9 years. I worked there full time and went to school uh, in the evening and I had my son with me. It was just him and I for a long time. I worked so hard. He was actually at my graduation when I graduated and it was wonderful. And I think one of the things that have followed me throughout Nails is I have been so fortunate to land in spots, in the spots that I needed to be at the time that I needed to be there. I'm a big believer in that. And I've had wonderful, lovely people who have helped me in ways that they don't even realize. So that to me is the bigger leadership story than my, you know, journey or my slog. It's and I think that's really what moves me and drives me because I feel this tremendous responsibility to give back. I've been so lucky, so lucky 
to land in multiple startups now that have had successful exits to where I don't have to worry about the financials of things now. And that was not the case. And who would have ever thought that that's where I would be in my life, but that's where I am. And now I'm just plain old farm girl Miranda from rural Michigan who wants to continue to give back to the community and give back to people wherever I can. Uh, such a powerful message and, and story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And and I see you giving back all the time, especially in the customer success community, always championing others. I saw a post on LinkedIn, I think it was today or, or on Friday, where you helped two people get jobs as a result of making a post and connecting the network right? and just bringing people together. And I love that you're just put that so front and center. And, you know, a couple of things you noted there that really, uh, you know, resonate with me or number one, the, you know, the drive, right? You had the drive and you weren't willing to settle for a life as a single mother in rural Michigan working at a factory. Like it just wasn't, even though that was the environment that you had grown up in and that was where the vast majority of the people you were around, it's what they did. You were, you said, no, there is something different for me. You took big risks going to Mexico, running operations at a plant, producing <laughs> producing all kinds of quality jeans and stuff for some of the biggest manufacturers, or from some of the biggest companies in the world, which is just fascinating. And then going back to Michigan and spending nine years inside an organization with a son and going to school at night. Um, curious, did he ever attend some of the classes that you went to? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I went to a private university where if you had a pulse, they would accept you, but that was what worked with my schedule. And I had some really awesome professors. So if I couldn't find a babysitter, little Lucas in a car seat would be, we'd be in the back of the classroom and he would just sleep. So he's been, he's probably had more college than most 20 year olds <laughs> <laughs> for a couple of years. I would take him and it, there were always evening classes. It got harder once he was you know, two, three, like when he was just a month old or a year and a half, even he would just sleep. He went with me quite a bit to school and the professors were just so cool about it. I tried not to make a habit of it, but if I had to, I knew I could bring him. And it was a school that was awesome because they, they really worked with working adults. So if there are folks out there that are thinking about going back to school you know, it isn't unobtainable. And now it's even more so not, you know, like unobtainable because of the online world, right? So. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. You know, if you look at that and say, okay, could you go through several years of really intense pressure working for a startup, having a newborn first time, right? And going and going through school, like all at the same time and trying to balance, you know, yourself and taking care of yourself. Like you'd probably look at that and be like, yeah, that sounds a little intense, right? But you go through it and you just figure out how to do it just like you perfectly did, right? 
You just figure it out because the bigger picture was more important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think that's where a lot of folks get stuck. And I, I do too. Some days it's, it's like one, you know, people don't pause enough to take a look at where they've been. And I, I was thinking about this. I was on a really long hike on Friday or sorry, Saturday. I went for, uh, it was almost a five mile hike and it was a little challenging. And I was hiking up this, this big hill and I'm like, holy smokes. I couldn't see what was on the other side of the hill. I paused for a second just because I was out of breath and I turned around and I looked behind me and I'm like, wow, look at where I've been. Holy smokes. Look how beautiful this is. And I got my camera out and I took some pictures and I'm like, okay, I wonder what's over that hill. I think there was just so much there, you know, in my brain. I'm like, people need to pause and recognize in those moments where you've been and celebrate that. And then what's on the other side of the hill, sometimes you don't know, but know that you will get there and it'll be okay. So, yeah. And you also didn't know what it was going to be like going up that hill before you started going up it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thankfully, I had my my hiking sticks to kind exactly. of... <laughs> so it's such a wonderful metaphor that like, well, from a leadership perspective, especially like we can be so focused on the future, where we want to get to, the role we want to be in, the company we want to serve, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just as important to keep the perspective of where you've come from, whether that was, you know, the last six months or the last six years or the last 15 years, whatever it is, right? There's so much change and it is so easy, so easy to completely forget the last 10 years of your life and just chalk it up as well. I'm just here. I now I need to go there. And it's so hard, but so worthwhile to take a look back and write down, what did you accomplish? And this is a really fun exercise. I highly encourage anybody listening. If you haven't done this in a while, take a look back at the last, let's just call it 12 months, the last 12 months, and just pick out one thing from each month. So 12 things that you did that were worthwhile. It could be personal, could be professional, could be project related, client related, doesn't matter. But just look at that and appreciate what you've done. And you'll probably have a completely different perspective on how to handle something you're going through or something you might go through. Absolutely. I love that. That's incredible. All right. So you were working in rural Michigan, nine years inside this organization, and then all of a sudden you ended up in San Francisco inside the tech scene. How did that transition happen? Because those sound like two completely different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, I was working in Lansing, Michigan for nine years, not very rural, but I did grow up and I lived in rural Michigan and I worked in factories that were out in rural Michigan, but I had switched and I was working for a pretty large organization. It had, I think at the time, like 30 plus thousand employees globally. And that's kind of where I I feel like I grew up a lot. I learned so much. Honest, the truth is, is how did I end up in California? I put my name out there. I knew some folks in this area and I was headhunted and took the leap. It's again, one of those moments where if I think about it, how scary for me to move from Michigan to California, single mom with a kid, triple the cost of living. (laughs) So at least, (laughs) yeah, I, I wanted more for my son. Uh, So my son is, you know, he's a mixed race and I wanted him to grow up in an area that gave him examples of folks of different race, backgrounds, religions, 
doing amazing things. And in my little rural community, he was like one of the few kids with brown skin. And I wanted him to have more opportunities. So here I am. I'm like, you know what? This is going to be another one of those moments. But instead of me doing it for me, I did it for him. And it ended up being great for both of us. So, wow. Wow. I mean, just thinking about that environment and the courage that it took to uproot, to leave, you know, all of Michigan and go several states away to California, which, you know, had a completely different world. And, but it was all for a bigger purpose, I think is the the key thing. And I'm seeing this as a, as a theme throughout each of the instances and stories that you've shared is there's always a bigger purpose behind this. And if that bigger purpose is there, you can make it through whatever the challenging times are. Cause I'm sure when you moved to California, it was not a, oh. a piece of cake, right? Oh, no. Oh my goodness. I wasn't making a great wage, but uh, it was a wage. It paid my rent. I was just terrified <laughs> like of everything. I know this is going to sound crazy, but I driving on 580 and 680, like I went from, you know, two or three lanes that had sparse traffic to just cars everywhere. <laughs> it, was, it was everything from that to like the price of beef. Like, <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? How much is it for a burger? <laughs> so here I am 11 plus years later and my son is, you know, in Chico in college and he went to one of the top, I think it's like top 300 high schools in the US. Uh, so it, it was amazing. And I got very lucky in a couple of places I landed like Lending Club and had the unicorn IPO and built a name for myself. So yeah, it all worked out, but I didn't know. I didn't know when I moved here (laughs) how it was going to work out. I just knew that I had to do this. And to be clear, my son hated me when he initially moved here. He did not want to leave Michigan. He was starting fifth grade. It was a very interesting age. Within I think three to six months he had settled in and kind of found his place. So even if you have a bigger vision and a bigger, more important thing you're doing things from, especially from a leadership perspective, sometimes it's not going to get the reception that you think, right? Whether you're talking about like your son saying, no, this is going to be great. We're moving to California. It's like, I don't want to go to California. I don't want to leave. Wait, I'm doing this for you. He's like, no, I don't want it. No, thank you. Right. And it, Makes a question, or you know, you're going to do something inside your org that's a you know a major change or a major shift, and you know it's going to be greater for the people, but they all revolt and don't want to have anything to do with it, right? So that long term view, you knew, right? That long term, this was it. One of the things I've learned over the years, though, is when you're making changes like this organizationally, you have to find a way to get buy-in early and buy-in often. And I tried that with my son. I was even doing tactics of this is going to sound crazy, but how many songs do you know that are sung about Michigan? Not many. And this is a fifth, I'm talking to a fifth grader here. I'm like, think of all the songs about California, like Tupac alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a very, that's a really clever, literally clever way to get buy-in. Then it worked. <laughs> it didn't well. work. Yeah. But nonetheless, the learning, you know, is the same is, you know, it, whether it's your personal world or your professional life, if you're making some enormous changes. Getting buy-in is so crucial uh, because if you don't have that buy-in, it's just going to make that 
uh, that journey very difficult. Yeah. So in that vein, on the you're a chief customer officer at Swiftly, and so you're responsible for a large number of pieces of the organization. And would you share just a little bit about how you go about getting buy-in? Because in some cases, these people, individuals, and departments report to you. In other cases, they probably don't. So how do you go about getting buy-in? As you mentioned, it's so critical early before driving some big change. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, to be clear. You know, it's always me like looking and, and trying to learn from, you know, previous mistakes. But I will say one of the biggest things I try to do to get buy-in is instead of starting with solutions, start with a problem statement. I hire and work with some of the smartest individuals out there. They're they're way smarter than me. I that's how I roll. Like I want people around me that could do my job. Right? And you start with the problem statements, start with a brainstorm session, start with something that helps them get their thoughts out and get their perspectives in. And then you kind of go from there. Instead of saying, hey, I see this problem. Here's the five things we're going to do to solve it. Just say, hey, I see this problem. Let's brainstorm this out. What do you think we should do? Or is this the right problem? Are there other problems I'm not seeing, right? And I haven't always been fantastic at that. Early in my career, I was quite a bit of a micromanager. And I it came down to that control thing again that we talked about where I wanted to control the outcomes and I wanted to make sure that we were going to hit our numbers, hit our mark, whatever it may be, we're going to deliver. And I took a lot of hostages back in the day trying to do that and learned quickly, very quickly that this is going to get me nowhere quick. And that's when I shifted, you know, a few companies ago to let's let's do this instead of you know top down let's let's do a bottom up approach and even if i see the problem i'll go in with like a problem statement and say is this the right problem statement is what should we are there more problem statements so i i try to start there and then make it more collaborative as much as possible love it i mean as a leader you are the facilitator of solving problems. You can't solve problems yourself, but you absolutely can facilitate people coming together to solve the problem. And I love that you called out identifying the problem statement first. You know, this is something I see across the board all the time, whether it's in companies I've consulted with or leaders that I'm coaching. The problem statement is rarely ever crystal clear before solutioning happens and before a whole lot of work gets done. There was a client of mine not long ago who was sharing some frustration with how a particular initiative was not going well. It technically required buy-in across a large percentage of the leaders of the organization. And we had a discussion about what the problem statement really was. And it was frankly unclear in the next leadership team meeting. This individual went back and said, I think we need to clarify the problem statement. And they spent probably 45 minutes of the leadership team time just trying to identify the problem statement before they all agreed. Once they agreed on it, it was a completely different problem than they thought, right? And that's just what happens. If you don't clarify that first, then the solutioning all just can be a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even remember why or when I started doing that. When I built that into my muscle memory, it significantly changed how I solve problems or how I lead with my teams or collaborate with my teams to solve problems. It just changed it. 
change the world. <laughs> so no, it, it does. It, 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 it does. It takes the pressure. It also takes the pressure off of you as a leader. Because if you, if you don't have any of the answers, you can't solve problems, but you can bring people together. Your job just got a million times easier. You can never be wrong. <laughs> well, I, I think about one thing, you know, somebody had said to me at one point in time is if you are the type of leader that goes in with, you know, the problem statement, the resolution, the activities, all of that, if any of that fails, it's you. It's right back on you. But if you're the type of leader that goes in and you collaborate and try to figure out the problem statement, try to figure out the resolution, you are by definition linked arms with your team. And if it goes wrong or fails, it's all, it's, it's everyone. It's not just, you know, one finger pointing, it's everyone. And then you figure out what you did wrong and you pick up and you learn from it and you move forward. It just totally changes the dynamic. Love it. Love it. Awesome. All right. So coming up on the last question here. If you could sit down and have a conversation with your younger self, let's pick the time maybe right before you made the transition to California. So you're working nine years, Lansing, inside this large global organization. If you could sit down with yourself then, knowing everything that you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, good question. One, move to California quicker. The weather is better. I love the startup world. Uh, it's my home. Uh, so do that. Two, really learn how to adapt your communication style uh, to the audience that you're working with and the individuals. Believe it or not, communication styles don't map across the globe. So you have to think about where folks are coming from and try to meet them there as early and as often as you can. Yeah. I love just meet them, meet them where they are. Exactly. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Miranda, you have such an incredibly powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, your background on the personal side, on the professional side, all the ups and downs and sideways that you've been through getting to the chief customer officer seat. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible experience and stories with us. Thank you so much for having me, Nils. I appreciate you and everything you do for the community. I'm just humbled and honored to be here. So thank the you. feeling is mutual. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at b2bleadershippodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.